I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 265 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today we have Drs. Christopher Jerome Carter and Tiffany Hauck here to discuss their new book, Jungian Reflections on Systemic Racism, Members of an American Psychoanalytic Community on Training, Practice, and Inclusivity, available from Rutledge, published 2023. You can find links to everything at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. And there is a video of this episode up at YouTube. Just visit Trapar Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Huge thanks to everyone who supports Rendering Unconscious Podcast at our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. I appreciate your support so very much. Rendering Unconscious Podcast is a labor of love. I do everything myself and I don't get any outside funding. So all support comes from Patreon and only Patreon. There is a $2 level if you want to show your support for the podcast but are not necessarily interested in our creative and magical practices. And if you are interested in creative and magical practices, join us at the $5 level and up where we post exclusive content on our Patreon every week, Magic Mondays on Monday and on Fridays, Carl Abrahamson, my partner, has been posting weekly musings where he writes an essay and posts it every Friday. So twice a week, you get exclusive content at our Patreon. Join us there. Thank you. All right. So, Chris, did you want to start us off? Sure. Thank you very much. Thank you very, Vanessa. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for inviting both Tiffany and I to uh, to sit with you and, and discuss a book that uh, is very, very, in my personal opinion, a beautiful work, a big sacrifice on the part of, of everyone who contributed, um, a risky topic, uh, because when, when you look at a title like Jungian Reflections on Systemic Racism, uh, you see systemic racism, and that's not a appealing topic. Um, and it's not an appealing topic when it's brought home to your, to our profession, any profession, but particularly prickly when it's a helping helper profession, a healing profession, and something that's so beautiful and effective as analytic psychology. And granted, I, I consider myself eclectic. I love a whole bunch of paradigms and refer to a bunch of paradigms. There's something very unique in the uh, analytic psychology, I think, that has to offer. Um, so thank you for, for broaching this topic. Of course, this is uh, no big uh, act of heroism on your behalf. I had the opportunity of looking at the previous podcast you had and listened to the the one with uh, 
uh, Laura Sheehy and and uh, and Stephen and and the rest and um, beautiful conversation. Exactly. You know, uh, when I see systemic racism, I get excited and I do think it's appealing and I want to talk about it and read this book. That's yeah. that's very encouraging. Um, you know, and I want to start by saying it's really kind of tough to have this discussion today um, in light of the number of wars that are being televised in those wars that are not. Um, my voice will get crackly periodically. Uh, let you know, I get passionate, um, but it's really difficult uh, to have this discussion. I almost feel selfish, um, but uh, it's still a very relevant discussion. Um, you know, as an African-American who wanted to be an analyst since he was about 12 years old, um, didn't know anything other than Freud and the name Carl Jung came around with some of his spookier pop books, like uh, something on flying saucers. And there was something about uh, uh, German mythology and uh, the idea of complexes. Um, these things really fascinated me as a kid. Um, the, the, the meaning behind what is not said, uh, pre-verbal meaning. Uh, so when I got the opportunity finally to join the JPA, uh, I think I started in 2016, I was gun-ho, gun-ho, on top of the moon. Uh, it, it was just an added caveat, uh, maybe even a reason to go there, that I had familiar faces, uh, someone like Tiffany, um, uh, who, who preceded me uh, in this path. And uh, just love her to death. If you get to know Tiffany Hawk, you're you're a lucky person. Um, but uh, you know, you you read this stuff, and people want to be true to the paradigm. Uh, we don't want to create a something that misrepresents, uh, you know, the, the the potency of what Carl Jung had to offer. Uh, so in our discussions of, of course, readings, I would naturally be very offended by outdated, narrow-sided, poignantly racist barbs that pretty much are scattered throughout his work. And I, I don't take it, you know, so personal like this isn't just Carl Jung. Uh, this is people would like to say this is the way people spoke back in those in those times. Uh, it was certainly much more socially acceptable. Uh, it's just very difficult uh, to address these longstanding hurts and uh, and voice where you stand uh, and still feel aligned. Uh, with this tradition. So of course, I, in the, over the years, I pushed back um, and uh, we had lots of discussions and that led to a paper that I published in the Journal of Analytic Psychology, uh, which has the same title as the chapter that I contributed in our book. Um, I'm very honored that it received the Gradiva uh, and 
then there was the offer for a book. Now, Tiffany, uh, I don't know, she's not going to sing her own praises, and it's probably a good thing that she's, I mean, she's not shy. She stands up for herself. Uh, she did a lot of really toilsome work. Um, uh, I found a lot of guidance. Uh, uh, some, she was an example. She's exemplary. And even in the midst of COVID, in the midst of a very publicized murder of George Floyd and a number of other names that I hope people haven't already forgotten, uh, over a string of years, increasingly intensifying it in the in the media, um, Tiffany uh, maintained the fight. She fights a good fight, uh, and in a way that it seems balanced, compassionate, and has integrity. So I got an offer by Routledge to write a book. I, I you know. You can ask a number of the contributors uh, the, the, back in 2021. Now it's a bit foggy. So in some stories, I'll, I'll say it was in November. Some stories I'll say it was in February. The documentation I have, yeah, it was like in spring 2021 to write a book. And when I approached Tiffany, uh, I was very happy that she accepted. Now, since I was still a student and she was an analyst, uh, I, you know, we thought, well, let's open this up. Let's get some other voices in here, some students and analysts, and maybe we'll have a conversation around systemic racism. There's not enough said uh, from this amazing healing profession uh, about what keeps this going. Uh, you know, uh, in in. In Jungian analysis, we're blessed with uh, the concept of cultural complex. Now we've got the idea of racial complex. And I, I, I'm sorry if I offend people when I say blessed. It's my old seminary training. It's not exactly what I do with my patients. I'm not a minister with my patients that way, but it's in my language. Uh, but cultural complex and race complex, those are really informative. What keeps it going? What keeps systemic racism going? And I just noticed through all my education, it really seems to be a dedication to the field, wanting to be um, presented in an authentic, professional way. There's certain standards to that. Um, but I think there's also a preservationist dynamic present. Uh, Tiffany and I, uh, approached different members of uh, of our personal learning community, uh, people who were outspoken uh, in any direction, for or against, uh, and asked them if they would contribute to the book. Uh, and so we have uh, a number of people who were students. Uh, I, by the time the book came out, I was an analyst. Uh, but there are two other students who had written and a number of really qualified, experienced writers. Um, it was just a joy working with Tiffany. Of course, it's not necessarily a joy writing a book. It's not necessarily a joy editing. Uh, we try to be as transparent as possible. We try to be as responsive as possible. 
And we tried to hold to a kind of a wide net that somehow still had this focus, this focus that wants to escape us. What is it that keeps systemic racism systemic? Um, that is the impetus of the book in a, in a snapshot from my perspective. I'll let Tiffany jump in if she wants to say anything on this. Yeah, um, I think that's a good summary of how like how things came to be. I like you, Vanessa, when I hear the topic systemic racism, I'm always eager to jump in. It's been since I was really little, actually, since I was in elementary school, something that I find myself wasn't called systemic racism then. Um, in my in my landscape, it was just called hanging out at the lunch table with people who were different than me in Texas and wanting to hear their stories. But that this has always been something that has drawn me in. What is the experience of the other? How does it um, what was what's afforded in that experience that I don't know about? And so I'm always wanting to to be a part of that conversation. Um, and throughout my various uh, my various different trainings. So I went from, um, training and, uh, as a, I did a master's in divinity <clears throat> where I was looking at, um, at different aspects of Hebrew Bible translation and interpretation and around specific topics where I felt there was a kind of closing off of other points of view. So I've always sort of drawn to that edge. Um, and then in, and when I was, when I later came to, uh, I was introduced to Jung, really, I had just barely heard of Jung in seminary. And I, I met someone on a play on the playground, actually playing with our kids when they were 10 months old. And we, she sort of told me about this degree program that combined psychoanalysis and Hebrew Bible. And that's sort of what led me to Union, which is where Christopher and I sort of pa crossed paths, but not at the same time. Christopher graduated many, many years before I did from the um, doctoral program. But our but our beloved mentor, Ann Yulinov, is is sort of how we we met. Um, and when when Ann introduced me really fully to to Jung, so in the doctoral program, uh, we you you do a full in-depth study of Jung and Freud and Winnicott and Klein and Fairbairn and Lacan, all the um, sort of psychoanalytic founders and schools. <clears throat> it was Jungian theory that I thought really had um, the language to address these larger, complex cultural phenomena that had always been curious and working to understand and talk about from various angles. Um, and I really thought Jungian theory uh, had had within its, in, in his method, a way of addressing. Um, so if we, if we take a step back and think about systemic racism, we're thinking about the projection or the scapegoating of the other, right? And the trying to kill off the other. And Jung has a very clear map of understanding that. And I and when I when I started reading Jung, I was like, I felt like I had been given a big drink of water, like someone was sort of giving me a, a way and a, like fueling a kind of understanding of why the world is the way the world is. Why do we do these horrible things to one another? What was what the presence of evil? How do we make sense of it? And in my view, it was through Jungian theory that I really came to understand how to walk around and in that on a collective level, but starting with the individual. So 
you know, I think when when I think about writing about this topic, it, to me, it felt like, how could we not talk about this? Jung, Jung has so much to offer. This moment in time, this conversation, this topic nationally, this topic internationally. Um, so, and then I, because of kind of who I am, I was also in dialogue with a bunch of other thinkers, including Lara Shiai, um, Michael Rothberg, who writes about the implicated subject. He's a philosopher. Um, then um, Resma Menikin, who's a social worker, is a trauma trauma um, therapist who writes about white body supremacy trauma in America. So that's sort of like just putting all of these, and then and then Fanny Brewster. Um, and uh, Samuel Kimball, Kimball's, a bunch of Jungian thinkers who are writing about cultural complex um, theory. So our intent, I think, with the book was to, like Chris said, have a dialogue between candidates who were steeped in the training and finding ways, ex having experiences where they felt themselves coming up against texts that were really difficult to understand, ways in which they potentially felt erased, giving them a place to voice how they were grappling with, with the work, the collected works, and then providing a space for the analysts to kind of respond to that with their, their own experience working in the field for so many years with this theory that's very alive. So that was the sort of the, the, the original seed of hope for the project, um, which I think we do to some extent have that kind of conversation. It, it unfortunately didn't, we didn't have as many candidates as I think that we had both kind of hoped for. But I think what we ended up with was a, a really good overview of Jungian theory from very seasoned analysts talking about these very difficult pieces of Jungian theory, not trying to get rid of them or explain them away, but really interrogating them. Yeah, I like that. I like what you said. You know, I, I, I think there was a, a feeling that it would be a communal book, meaning that somehow there would be a, a much thicker spine that connected the, the, the various topics, the various writings in the book. But what we actually did is we asked each contributor um, to kind of keep it in a vase, you know, to, to kind of hold it. Now, whether or not they did that, that's another thing. But we weren't making a public statement that we're writing this. We just kept it between the writers. And there was, you know, a privacy because we were inviting people to really go deep. We're inviting people to, if they felt comfortable to do so, disclose, do the shadow work. Uh, to exemplify what it takes to really think about this. Race isn't the other. Um, what is race? Uh, this is the the big reason I, I got so loud and put the paper out and, and really wanted the book. Uh, it, it, you know, Race is a, a concept people aren't really seeming willing to surrender. It's a comfortable go-to. Uh, it means a number of things. As a matter of fact, it could probably mean different things to different people. What is race? And yet it's so impactful. It's so uh, 
constricting. If you're an African, well, let me speak for my own self. I can't speak for every African-American. I can't speak for every Native American. But, uh, you know, growing up, I was told race doesn't exist. Uh, a single Black mother told me, we're, we're all equal. We're all equal. In her concept, we all come from Africa. But we're all equal. And uh, just as in the 70s, Black soul music was so foundational, maybe just a little less foundational than the Black church, but it was such, such a supportive thing. Uh, still is Black music and Black art. But uh, my mother would say, everyone has a kind of soul music. Country music is a kind of soul music. Flower music is a kind of soul music. This is how she thought. Uh, it's it's where you're going down. It's where, where you're drawing from that determines whether or not it's soulful and how it communicates. Uh, but in, in education, we keep coming up with this idea of race and no one is really able to say what it is other than the old argument of biological features, which is kind of like washed away, it's color. But you're racist if you say, is he black? Is she white? Instead, we feel comfortable saying, well, what race is she? Uh, what is race? Race is uh, something that was built to feed the uh, cap early capitalist system that would justify treating the human beings like animals, especially in the minds of those who consider themselves children of God. Doing these things to other would be children of God. So when we step into race, when we try to become proud of our race, we are actually lifting up uh, a, a categorization that actually holds us back. Now, does it hold us back physically? Yeah, unfortunately it still does, but it starts in our perception. And what's really impactful is that it can start in one's self-perception. So when we're reading people who are very influential, whether it's Jung, Freud, or any other theorist in any field, and we're looking to them to feed us, to nourish us, and we're eating this stuff. We're introjecting this stuff. And if we align with it wholeheartedly, as though we have no, who am I to criticize? Who am I to question? If we go like that, we may find ourselves aligning with very hurtful attitudes in such a way that we adopt them. We want to be, uh, we want to be inclusive. We want to welcome diversity. Uh, we want uh, everybody to have a chance for greater health and wholeness. Uh, and yet, there's this little thing. How do I look at my patient? How do I look at my teacher who has a different skin color? And how do I deliver a message of 
wellness and health and speak to this disparity over here, a person's personal opinion that does not necessarily feed the theory, feed the paradigm. It's the attitudes, in my personal opinion, the attitudes of white supremacy, not white supremacism, I wanna differentiate. Supremacism, that ideology, supremacists, that's, the, that's their thing. They're consciously doing something, that's their choice. But something happens to us on a very unconscious level uh, and it's very insidious, uh, but but uh, it's really hard to be somebody who really is trying to be giving and to come up against a mirror that says, "Yeah, but what about what about this little thing in the attitude? The attitude that says, "Get over it. You're always bringing up race. Get over it." That was from 1875. Okay, good. But you're presenting it to me like it's still valid. Like it's a valid stance. UN said 1940s, late 1940s, race doesn't exist. Yeah, there might be some biological thing that scientists can use, but for the greater collective, we're better off talking about ethnicity. We're better off talking about culture and tradition. The word race, is more detrimental than it is helpful. And still, we, we're, we, we've gotten such a mercurious relationship with it. We wanna be proud of our races, but we wanna denounce racism. What do you think, Tiffany? I love that you both started oh, out in yeah. divinity. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the many things Chris and I, Christopher and I share. Yeah, our our paths sort of like inter did this thing all for many, many years, I think, uh, different training, different ways we were working in the world and the trainings that we did. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one, one, just to sort of bring this all, you know, what one of the things that I've been really with as I'm sure all, all of us have been over the past week, is how do we hold an analytic attitude? What is an analytic attitude? So if we're picking up on Chris, what you say about attitude, right? The thing that I've been, that I, I, I think of it less as like, who's for this topic and who's against this topic. I don't think about it that way. I think about it around how do we hold an analytic stance when we are talking about the very concrete lived realities of our culture, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexuality, our nationality? Like when those things enter the office, they say always are going to because we are li real live human bodies, one another in an office together or on a virtual office together. Um, how do we hear? at listen and hear and sit with these differences and what is inevitably also going to be conflictual experiences analytically. Um, and I think this week, I mean, certainly I feel like what is happening in Gaza is, and in Israel is the thing that is the most, I mean, almost more than COVID. I don't know if either of you have experienced this, but at least in the past three days, I've been, um, it's been 
it's been maybe surprising to me how how much this this war, this conflict has really activated so much in individuals on every side, as you can imagine, as it always does. And there's all this projection around like what they fantasize where I stand on this topic and questions, where do you stand? And I need to know, or do you know, sort of the question of what, how do we hold the analytic attitude when real, when we're in the midst of real traumatic experiences and we all experienced this experience this during COVID as well, right? We were all thrust into our homes and there was like less um, of a kind of neutral possibility. And mm. I think that's kind of where we've been in the past five, four years, like less analytic neutrality is possible. And does that necessarily mean we we lose our analytic stance? No, I don't think so. I think this is the gift that psychoanalysis can give, does give to the world right now, not just in our office, but in our collective spheres and spaces. I mean, Vanessa, you have seen all that has been happening on the Das Ubenhagen um, listserv, and it it does feel like a very difficult move to hold the analytic attitude. What is that even? You know, how do we how do we create a space where opposing voices, trauma, you know, traumatized voices can come and have a way of sitting with and being with all that is there, all that's activated and continue the dialogue, not collapsing into the necessarily concrete reality, but not denying the concrete reality. That is obviously important and real. So I think that's sort of like what the, what it's, it, it, we have found it very complicated and tricky to publish this book. Um, I think because of what it activates, um, it it activates in in people who hadn't quite known what it would activate even. Um, and how do we sit with that without collapsing into um, projected ideas, concretized notions, um, those kinds of things? Yeah, I know. When I read, when I first got the book and asked you to come on the podcast, um, before I actually opened it, just from the title, I assumed it was going to be like, Jungian theory looking at systemic racism and then it it is that but it's also so much more because you like you said like go for the theory itself and things that Jung said you know we don't like let him off the hook for things that he said you start there and then interrogate the training institutes and how this is propagated in training systemic reasons and then also looking at it more broadly it's really interesting that has so many different layers to it Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's what's um, surprisingly beautiful about the book. And I, I you know, initially I, I was expecting somehow more unity in the topic, somehow more unity on the landing spot, but we didn't know what that quite would look like. Uh, yet there is there is there is a spine, there is a spirit through the whole book. There is a um, a thread uh, that unites it. I think. And I think I I think I I felt slightly differently. I think I'm not sure, but I think that especially because there was we did we did intentionally ask people in our we we kept it local uh, mainly because 
Well, that we probably have different understandings of why, but I think it, like I, I was excited about the dialogue, the, 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 the Institute where um, the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association, which is our Institute had, had been having these conversations there. They had been coming and, um, and, and I felt there was a kind of, I, I felt there was an excitement to, to continue the dialogue. And yet I, I also was very aware that not everybody landed in a, at all a similar place. And so I was interested in having a real diverse kind of conversation around this. Some people who, you know, in the Jungian world, you get people who are, uh, what what might be considered more classical Jungians who are like very archetypal. Some of it, some people even are are would consider themselves more archetypal psychologists. Um, and then and then others who would consider themselves to be more kind of like um object relations Jungian. So much more thinking about the transference. And there's a pretty big range of Jungian um psychoanalysts. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think the JPA has a really nice range, actually. It's not kind of geared towards really everyone being really classical or alchemical or object relations. And, you know, I think there's like a good, a real diversity in Jungian kind of approach, actually, at the JPA. So I was excited about the, the, kind of conversation that we might be able to garner in this in something um something like this and then one of the unfortunately and she she wasn't able to because because of her own sort of um health reasons but one of our most senior analysts was uh was going to contribute a chapter on forgiveness which i really felt would have been it, it, this this was sort of my one of the things i was excited about the project is sort of a real comprehensive approach to a psychological symbolic understanding of how we work with systemic racism, how we understand it psychologically, symbolically. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of just went off a little tangent there, I think, but we love that. tangents here. It's <laughs> <laughs> associations. <laughs> yeah. But, I think like the the I'm always interested in sort of getting a range of range of of ideas and thoughts in the room to hear what people have to say like that kind of um difference doesn't that to me feels like an analytic attitude like let's get all the differences in the room let's let's talk there at that level and can we sit in the in the conflict that it might bring up and can we learn more about ourselves through the process yeah I, I, I'm really appreciative that each contributor brought their topic. They thought it through, you know, they, they took it home and they really, really did some work on it. Um, and it was personal. I think each author gave a very personal, uh, you could tell it was from their own personal experience. Yeah. I, I think the, the sticking point uh, for some people is when they look at the back cover, which we've actually changed. Um, I actually like the new back cover better, but I, I kind of like something about the old back cover too. <laughs> but uh, Tiffany and I decided to parse out our voices from the collective because not everybody uh, likes the idea of um, talking about 
white body supremacy or what I propose an attitude of, of white supremacy. Um, so we, we, we'll, we own that. Uh, but it's really interesting that someone would look at that cover. It's a psychonomic book. It's written by professionals. It's written by very educated people. And instead of being able to parse it out as a possible psychoanalytic concept that's being introduced, it feels like an attack. See, just by the cover, the, the, there's something that gets activated. And that is gold. You know, it's not comfortable. The conversation is going to have friction and it's gonna need people to be reflective enough for self-control, for compassion enough responses, even while we're speaking from our truths. Uh, we have to be able to, to speak on these hard things. I grew up with white people saying very offensive things to me so they could get some knowledge. Touching my hair, how do you do that? Well, you know what? I don't mind informing people about my hair. You know, my hair doesn't naturally grow in locks. I, I appreciate this, this conversation. It's a cultural conversation and it's a choice conversation, aesthetic conversation. And it's a bizarre thing if you have straight hair, if somebody's hair is in a lock. But the feeling of being uh, less than, literally petting your hair, this is so... In 2023, we know this is so wrong. Um, I, I, I had the honor of, if she ever gets to hear this, uh, this is said in full respect and love. But when I was at the music conservatory at Denison University, I was working in the office as a you know student work, uh, work study. And uh, there was a mother who brought her little daughter in probably for a Suzuki violin lessons. And... The little girl comes over to me and she says, why is your hand darker on this side, but white on this side? And her mother was horrified. My supervisor, the, the person in charge of, we call her the uh, crisis coordinator back then, she was sort of terrified. I was overjoyed. <laughs> this was a little child coming to me not looking down, not even afraid. She's in her nature. She's coming to me, asking me a very natural question. Same question I remember asking my mother once in the past. How is this? Why? And, and we were able to play with it in a way that was educational. And she was able to take something away. It's a tough conversation when you're an adult. You know, uh, we have comforts, we have givens, we have perceptions that uh, often we don't need to be so concerned about what the other person's feeling. Take that to your analyst. We don't need to be uh, uh, concerned about whether or not we're really hurting a person. Uh, it, it's just it's just how people speak in society. It's just. I, I don't know. Uh, I do know. I'm just trying to find the words to say this, that we can do something very effective 
by taking out some of the building blocks of systemic racism. And I like the word systematized racism because I like the idea that we are currently actively contributing to it. It's not just a done deal. We have choices. To do nothing is a choice to, to do harm. And I totally appreciate the do nothing stance. I truly do appreciate the do nothing stance. But uh, it's harming self too. This book gives, uh, gives people a possible end to just sitting, reflecting, and doing the really hard work about where do I stand? What is the depth of my own humanity here? The shadow work is, is a beautiful opportunity. Um, and that would probably be a whole different podcast just to talk about shadow. You know shadow. Um, I have a person who just reached out to me today for analysis. Why? Because he wants to do shadow work. It's the first person who ever came to me saying, I want to do shadow work. I'm guessing they read the book. Um, but it's opening conversations. It's us, the preservationists, the ones who really know that uh, there's a risk to airing our dirty laundry. But Society is not as stupid as we'd like to think they are. There are lots of brilliant people. There are lots of poor people who have a concept into Jung. Um, so what are we saving? What are we preserving? It's time to, to recognize ways that we keep others out. Uh, how often are we talking about transgender issues? How often are we talking about uh, uh, look, it's not safe to talk about Palestine in Israel. But it's happening here too. The rift is affecting us too here, right? We're all connected. Black and white, that's a color thing. What are you going to say to a mother who has a white skin child and a black skin child? She's their biological mother. They're born in the same city. What, they're different races? What is was race then? It cuts deep because as a white person, that you can kind of feel like, I imagine, that you're not directly impacted by this. As a person of color, you can't escape it. I didn't grow up thinking I was less than. I didn't grow up thinking I was less human. I didn't grow up thinking that my shade of skin was, I actually like my shade of skin. I'm very happy I have my shade of skin. Um, I didn't think that was an out or a negative or a hit um, that I that I drew the wrong cards or something. I, uh, I'm not fated to be less than. So when I get a chance to speak up for myself, if necessary, I speak up for myself. And I think that's an example of being analytic as well. I'd speak up for me. Um, but I think that we really do fear something that is like a death. We fear a death. We fear a death of our practice. We fear a death of psychology. I heard people in your podcast say, Psycho psychoanalysis is dead. It's useless. It simply is not. It's very, very fruitful. I'm sitting here telling you it's very, very, very fruitful. Um and maybe if they take a look in the book, they'll get an in on that as well. 
Exactly. Right, I Tiffany, feel like psychoanalysis. Tiffany, now I'm ranting. <laughs> I love, I love it. I like. I think that psychoanalysis and analytic psychology have a lot to offer. Um, right now, that's why I do this podcast to talk about these great books that are coming out, because I think it's all very relevant for what's going on nowadays, both on like individual levels with individuation and societal levels and political levels. Um, yeah, and this book definitely adds to the discussion in really beautiful ways. Um, and I just want you to know we have 15 minutes before the end of the hour so that we're getting to the end of the time. Um, if there's anything that you want to mention that ha we haven't gotten to yet, I was just going to point out too what you talked about a little bit earlier, Tiffany, uh, touches upon with silence and neutrality, touches upon what you discuss in your chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that to me, I find myself, um, that's, you know, something kind of like that you're always chewing on. That's the thing that I'm always chewing on as I think as an analyst is this, I'm always, I guess I I'm consistently surprised by what, you know, and I think people, different people, they say different things about this, but this, this concept of analytic neutrality or analytic abstinence, as if we can be a kind of person without um, a history in relationship to someone who's sitting, who's sitting in the room with us. You know, we, I, I say this in a, in one of my recent um, articles where, you know, we, we, we can't help but smell like we're a human body. We can't, we, we bring the smells from whatever meal we've been cooking from our apartment that, you know, comes and seeps through our pores. Like one of the, one of the ways, uh, one of the jobs I did before was, um, I brought college students together to live in intentional, intentionally, uh, multi, multi-ethnic community living for the summer. And we had to, I, they all cooked meals together and studied together. And then they lived in the city and they had to go to these internships. And then they came back and talked about what it was like to work in the city. And, you know, just one of the major learning moments was just like sitting in a room and smelling the different smells of different people's uh, culture that they cook when everybody was cooking for one another. And I just feel like that's something we can't escape as analysts. Like we bring it into the office, whatever it is, whatever our like, uh, you know, like tone of our skin color or how we smell or what we, how are, what words we know and what words we don't know, right? We can't escape that. And so how do we work with that consciously, um, directly, rather than it just being assumed, because when we're not di directly addressing it, then the assumption is you're like me, you you know, like I know. And that's of course, sort of part of the role of the patient is assuming that the analyst knows or doesn't know or what, you know, that's that's the work of of projection and the, the desire to have to be more of an, an, a neutral stance is so that it can be a more blank field for projection. But when it's only, when it's only going one way I and when it's not part of the dialogue in a real alive, concrete way, I think we miss a, a huge opportunity and, and risk doing great damage. I think to not address it in a way that's, that we can, that we have the opportunity to address it analytically. So mm -hmm to just say it right up front, even sometimes, um, you know, I, I've had the experience even sometimes with patients where 
it's the, you know, that kind of old analytic stance of you don't say anything that isn't brought into the room. You wait for the patient to bring it into the room, but that just is, I think that that kind of assumes a kind of power dynamic. It, it, It ignores a power dynamic that's inherently in the room. And when you open up the window just a little bit, and then the, you notice the patient relaxes like into being able to talk about something that they didn't even know that they were keeping themselves back from talking about. So yeah, I think that I really think a lot about what is this idea of neutrality and how is it actually a def- an analytic defense mm-hmm. right uh, on the on the on the part of the analyst. Yeah, I, I think it's Otto Kernberg who uh, most influenced me around the the countertransference and the transference and especially working with um the population that, uh, that deal with borderline um, configurations uh, using the transference. Um, there, there may be times where, and I'm not sure that Kernberg says this, so I'm not going to put this on him, but I know there are other theorists uh, that, that talk about the value of the countertransference, not just, um, not just the value of it with my own personal analyst, the analyst seeing an analyst, but the the value of it, and probably every theorist will have to acknowledge this, the value of it in the room with the patient. There, there is a kind of intersubjectivity that occurs. There's a kind of flowing of energies between two people who are able to sit with each other, gaze at each other, open up your, your hearing and your concern for each other, uh, there's counter-transference stuff's going to leak out. What shield are you going to have to protect that? This, there's, of course, it's the patient's session, uh, and the patient's the focus. Um, but we are very much in that room. We're not gods sitting in front of children. And uh, I, I really don't know, for those who, who do that, uh, as Tiffany's describing, uh, neutrality, um, I guess it works for some people in paradigms. If, if people get patience and there's probably healing, uh, that's different in the analytic paradigm. You know, that the image is that there are two people in a vase and then a third comes up. The third's not the analyst, the third's not the patient. Uh, there has to be a degree of opening up how can you do that if you're sitting in front of somebody who is to you swarthy, a bit unclean, not as uh, not as Bloomingdale's as you, <laughs> someone who's more like a you know a, a lower uh, a, a lower economic uh, scale, and you know that. You're sitting there with your precious gems and you're looking at this person. You don't think that they can feel that you're looking down. They still are there giving you the best. They're still hoping against hope. They're there for them. You don't think they can feel it? I know if I felt it in the past. And not just with union analysts. I've seen people from a number number of paradigms. Um, uh, It's a real thing. What are we putting out onto the other that we need to pull back? The saying is, if I don't deal with it in here, 
it's got to be externalized. What, so now it belongs to the patient? Uh, what are we doing to ourselves then? Beautifully well, yeah. put. I think, I think in that way, we could, you know, a way of sort of like ending if we, if this is, if it feels appropriate, is this, that the, the book is almost a work. It's our, it's a work that we, it's like, we're doing it also for ourselves, as you say, Chris, to withdraw the projection to, as we would say in the Jungian work, right. To withdraw the projection, to be able to work with it in ourselves because without, and then, because when we aren't doing that, we're leaving it to the other, the patient, the whole other group of people, the nation, the right to have to live it that in the, what we are not living. Yeah. Um, It's a reward to hear a patient come to me um, and not give up. Um, And it's sad when they come to me, even though they haven't given up, but their report is they, they left a white analyst because they didn't, they didn't get it. They weren't listening. They were too prescriptive. They were too binary. Uh, it's in it's in our system. But Jung never meant to be worshipped. Well, at least he says that. He, you know, he's not the end. This this is psychoanalysis. He loved psychoanalysis. Further the paradigm means including more. Absolutely. So uh, you know, I, this is not to. I have to say this. Uh, the the uh, big impetus for me, big motivation for me, was reaching out, not just inform uh, uh, students and analysts, but to get the word out to the general public, <laughs> as though the general public is going to read this academic book. I, I think it was at tar- Target Walmart, so there's there's a hope, but to get the to get people to realize, you know, that. Analytic psychology is really, really beautiful. And it comes from all of us. There's one man who, and 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 his group who kind of collected information and got this, this thing about how humanity seems to operate, how the, the, the human organism works, what you don't see matters as well. Um uh, but it, it, you know, if you're an African American, if you're Indian. If you're Latino or Latina, Hispanic, if you're Russian, if you're um, Palestinian or Jewish, if you're Native American, I think you can find things in in our paradigm that's going to be really, really fruitful to have very difficult conversations internally and interpersonally. Well, thank you both so much for being here. (laughs) Definitely get the book, Jungian Reflections on Systemic (laughs) Racism. And um, I would love to have you both back and I would love to do a whole episode on the shadow and shadow work. That would be great. And if any other contributors would want to come on, they're more than welcome. Or any other Jungian analysts that you know that you think would like to be on the podcast, please invite them because I would love to have more Jungians. Cool. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks for (laughs) all the work you're doing with us at Ubenhagen and all that. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Christopher Jerome Carter and Tiffany Houck. Check out their book, 
Jungian Reflections on Systemic Racism. Available now from Rutledge. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can follow him on social media at carl.abrahamson on Instagram and visit his main website at carlabrahamson.com. And now the song All Alone featuring Elizabeth Punzi from the album Spiral Assembly Lines by Cotton Ferox, available at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy.